This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. What would have happened if China had discovered America before Europe? More importantly, what would have happened if it colonized America? These questions have received some attention by historians, those who look at the age of discovery, much more so by amateur researchers convinced that China did discover America first, but those most interested have been those that speculated on alternate history. The Chinese discovery and settlement of the North American continent is a favorite topic by writers in the niche genre and subject of numerous books and short stories. The Chinese discovery and settlement of the North American continent is a favorite topic by writers in the niche genre and the subject of numerous books and short stories. The most well-known is Kim Stanley Robinson's The Years of Rice and Salt. In this speculative fiction, the bubonic plague wipes out 99% of Europe's population rather than one-third, and Islamic and Buddhist societies emerge as the world's most powerful by the 15th century. The Chinese discover the Americas first, destroy its indigenous civilizations instead of the Spanish conquistadors, and name the land Yingzhu. While China's discovery of the New World only exists in the realm of fiction, although many people have speculated that it did visit the coastlines of the Americas, it is a plausible scenario. 
Prior to the 19th century, China was the wealthiest, most powerful, most technologically advanced civilization in the world and dominated trade along the Pacific coast. Its navy was well-funded and dwarfed its rivals. Furthermore, at the height of its power, it was helmed by Zhang He, the most towering figure in 4,000 years of Chinese naval history and maritime expeditions in the pre-modern world. It's for this reason that many researchers are baffled that China didn't colonize the Western Hemisphere. The thought is so intriguing that it's convinced some amateur historians of its truth, despite no evidence to support such a claim. The most well-known and oft-dismissed theory of China's discovery of the New World comes from a 2002 book by Gavin Menzies entitled 1421, The Year China Discovered America. In his book, he argues that from 1421 to 1423, during the Ming Dynasty, the fleets of Admiral Zheng He undertook such a trip. Menzies argues that Zheng He discovered Australia, New Zealand, the Americas, Antarctica, and the Northwest Passage, the last a feat not accomplished until the 20th century, and even circumnavigated Greenland and the rest of the globe a century before Magellan. He says the discoveries were only lost because the Mandarin bureaucrats of the imperial court refused to continue funding the expensive alternatives. When Emperor Zhu Di died in 1424, the new emperor forbade further explorations and bureaucrats hid or destroyed records of previous explorations that discouraged new voyages, thus ending China's chances for colonization of the New World. So basically, the entire theory is that absence of evidence is evidence of absence, which I've taken on a lot of conspiracy theories in the show, and if anyone resorts to that, then there's just about a good 0% chance that it's true. And Menzies' theory has been universally panned by sinologists for its faulty use of sources and lack of evidence to support his revisionist claims, and relying on his argument of pointing to a lack of sources as evidence of a cover-up. But most of all, it's unnecessary for Menzies to embellish the legacy of Admiral Zhang He. We're going to look at him in this episode, continuing our series on looking at prominent travelers and explorers throughout history, and he commanded seven voyages across the eastern maritime world. He commanded a fleet of 27,800 sailors on 62 treasure ships, each with nine masts and were larger than a football field, weighing 2,000 tons. The ships ferried porcelain, silks, and exotic treasures that were sold into the markets that dotted the Indian Ocean coastline or were gifted to the rulers. Each ship was twice as large as the first transatlantic steamer built 400 years later. They were so massive that all the combined fleets of Columbus and Vasco da Gama could have fit on a single deck of a single vessel of Zhang He. If he had ever encountered Columbus in the Atlantic, It'd be like an African black rhinoceros and a meerkat eyeing each other from opposite sides of a watering hole on the savannah. The treasure fleets were accompanied by 190 smaller vessels made up of equine vessels carrying horses, supply ships, troop transports, warships, patrol boats, and water tankers. Along with sailors and soldiers, the fleet carried doctors, laborers, explorers, navigators, and scholars. And this was a gigantic floating city. Well, Zheng He came from an unlikely background for such a powerful naval commander. He wasn't of Han Chinese origin, but born into a family of Central Asian Muslims. The great-grandson of a Mongol warrior, he was the second son of poor parents. His father, Mahaji, was a rural official in the Mongolian province of Yunnan and a devout Muslim who had completed the pilgrimage to Mecca years before. Mahaji taught his son the dual disciplines of Islamic religious practice and military strategy. He was experienced in both, serving as a resistance fighter during the Ming conquest of Yunnan, then ruled by the Mongol prince Basala Warmi. 
When Zheng He was 10, the Ming Dynasty had defeated the alien Yuan Dynasty, founded by Genghis Khan's grandson Kublai Khan, and begun a cleansing campaign of the Mongol leadership structure and their supporters. The slaughter amounted to 60,000 deaths. After his father was killed in the conflict, Ming allied Muslim troops took the 11-year-old prisoner along with 380 other captives. They ritually castrated him and other sons of the previous dynastic bloc. This is how you change leadership. Zheng He was sent into servitude in the household of the emperor's fourth son, Zhu Di, the prince of Yan, in the 1380s. Here he grew into a tall, silent, and reflective figure who intrigued the prince, who was 11 years his senior. The two became unlikely friends, and the eunuch carved out a position for himself as a chief aide. The prince began to invite Zhang He to join him on military campaigns. These battles afforded him the opportunity to put into practice the tactical philosophies his father had taught him. And there was no shortage of opportunities to test these theories either. Zhu Di ruled Beijing, located near the northern frontier, close to hostile Mongol tribes. Zhang He accompanied him on his first expedition in 1390, during which he defeated Mongol leader Naga Chu. Being part of the household of a prince had its advantages. He received a world-class education, read the philosophies of Confucius and Mencius, and became skilled in both battle and diplomacy. These were rare opportunities for court eunuchs, who were often kept illiterate under the belief that education wasn't suitable for a life of servitude. He was also well looked at by Zhu He, who thought highly of the eunuch and called him Sanbao during his time of service, which refers to the three jewels in Buddhism. This reversal of fortune wasn't lost on Zheng He, who realized that despite his suffering in the past, he was lucky to have gained the trust of a powerful monarch and patron. He came of age when China prepared for an unprecedented campaign of global exploration. In the early 15th century, much of Western Asia lay in destruction and political chaos. The Turco-Mongol ruler Tamerlade died in 1405, after crushing every empire between Moscow and Delhi, including the Mamluk Sultanate in Egypt and the Ottoman Empire, stacking the skulls of his conquered to warn would-be rebels. Tamerlane died on the eve of his planned conquest of China. Historian Paul Lund notes that his destruction of the cities on the overland trade routes that had dominated the global economy for the previous 200 years, including Isfahan, Baghdad, Damascus, Aleppo, and Smyrna, many of which were stopping places for Marco Polo and even Batuta, crippled the Asian economy. After Tamerlane's death, the entire region fell into instability, and the explorers we looked at of the late Middle Ages who traveled on these routes couldn't do so in this age. Overland travel was dangerous again. It was expensive, and it required an army for safe passage. So the Chinese needed a reliable sea route to send their goods west and avoid this altogether. The Chinese Yongle Emperor had been preparing for such a voyage years before Tamerlane's death. He commissioned the building of a massive trade fleet, ordering the royal coffers to be emptied to meet its expense, calling for every carpenter or tradesman with basic construction skills to go to the eastern coasts where employment was assured. China's harbor soon filled with wood sent from the hinterlands for shipbuilding. Thousands of craftsmen took the beams and assembled the vessels in the shipyard. They worked for months and years assembling the fleet of Chinese junks, the docks filled with the sound of hammers and other tools. Massive timbers were first hewn flat and floored over with planks to form a log bed. Then they bent timbers around the structure to form the hole in its numerous compartments. Nine masts were then installed on each ship, then covered with the characteristically Chinese sails. 
They differed from their western counterparts with their horizontal numbers, called battens, which provided shape and strength. The final result of the multi-year construction project was a fleet unlike anything the world had ever seen. It wouldn't be surpassed until World War II, when America armed itself to fight in the Pacific Theater. The fleet prepared to depart in 1405, and all it needed was a commander. But it needed a commander unafraid to lead a voyage filled with danger. At this time in history, no navy had ever embarked on an intercontinental journey of thousands of miles, even though sea travel was far less expensive than overland travel. Sailors in the 15th century couldn't determine the location of their ship if they ventured too far out to sea. And this is why it took a few different inventions, like accurate timekeeping devices for the age of discovery, to become possible. Latitude could be determined easily from the altitude of the sun at noon and the position of the stars at night, and Sailors since antiquity had figured this out, but longitude couldn't be determined accurately until innovations in clockwork and astronomy in the 17th and 18th centuries. As a result, sailors who ventured too far from the coasts on long voyages easily lost their positions. Errors in navigation resulted in shipwrecks and other maritime disasters. Sailors had to hug the coastline to keep track of their position, but deepwater vessels that were better designed for long trips didn't fare well in such shallow waters. Leading a voyage at this time in history required instinct, knowledge of geography and astronomy, and most of all, courage. Now, it's not to say that sea routes between China and India didn't exist. They'd been established in maps since the Han Dynasty, which lasted from 206 BC to 220 AD, and cartographers produced new naval charts and maps at a steady clip. But the sheer size of the fleet, which was larger than the population of medieval Paris or London, and that's what I mean when I say that the fleet really was a floating city, made the journey arguably the high point of pre-modern naval exploration and its most risky venture. These were the circumstances into which Zheng He entered political and military life. At a time when eunuchs were considered untrustworthy or incompetent, his loyalty and intelligence distinguished him among his peers. He became a trusted advisor to the prince, which was a crucial position when civil war erupted in the Ming Dynasty between him and Jiangwen Emperor in 1399 over a succession dispute. During the course of the Three-Year War, the forces of the Prince of Yan moved throughout northern China until it captured the imperial capital of Nanjing. The Jianwen Emperor soon died, and Zhu Di was crowned emperor. Zheng He's status as a eunuch ironically earned him preferential treatment over the court's Confucian scholars, who refused to support Zhu Di, the emperor's fourth son, and therefore an illegitimate claimant to the throne according to the Confucian principles of royal succession. The new emperor was unconventional, but he gave Zheng He opportunities for meritorious advancement that would have been impossible in a traditional Chinese court. He proved his merit quickly. The eunuch won numerous battles with his tactical brilliance and knowledge of military science. He towered over his subordinates with his mental and physical presence. And this is metaphorically and literally true. Zheng He is recorded as being seven feet tall, which actually wasn't uncommon for eunuchs due to their lack of testosterone production which caused a later closing of bone growth plates and a longer period of pubescent growth. He was described as having powerful features and an intelligent visage with a high forehead, a small nose, glaring eyes, and a voice, quote, as loud as a bell. Pretty useful on a ship when you have to shout over long distances. Shortly after consolidating his power at home, Emperor Zhu Di commissioned the first naval expedition in 1405 to project his power abroad. He desired to impose imperial control over Indian Ocean trade in the wake of Tamerlane's death in 1402, 
and fill the power vacuum left behind in Central Asia and the Near East. In order to do so, he sent the Chinese naval juggernaut on a series of treasure voyages to impress foreign rulers along the basin of the Indian Ocean with illustrious gifts, collect dues from his vassals, and expand the empire's tributary system. The fleet's many ships were filled with sailors, clerks, interpreters, medical men, meteorologists, artisans, and soldiers. The fleet also included a team of linguists to work as translators during official negotiations. The massive holds of the treasure ships brought Chinese goods to be traded for spices, ivory, animals, and precious stones. So this is interesting because it's different from, let's say, a fleet of conquistadors or Spanish explorers where there are, might be a few priests and soldiers, but not really a lot in the way of a science or discovery. What Zheng He is doing is much more similar to, say, a Captain Cook or a Charles Darwin of the 18th and 19th centuries, where it's about discovery. It's about trying to understand new lands and trying to communicate with different populations that you encounter for the first time. As the admiral of this treasure fleet and the envoy of this imperial court, Zheng He received respect from foreign dignitaries normally reserved for royals. The 35-year-old admiral led the fleet out of the Suzhou Harbor on July 11, 1405. The scores of wooden behemoths skirted the coast of China, Vietnam, Thailand, and Indonesia to the astonishment of local fishermen and coastal villagers. News of the enormous fleet spread throughout Southeast Asia. Whenever the fleet waited anchor at a harbor, the host city in question was flooded by tens of thousands of foreign sailors. The large contingent of sailors served as an important function for Chinese propaganda. Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. Sociologist Janet Abu-Lugud notes that the impressive show of force that paraded around the Indian Ocean during the first three decades of the 15th century was intended to signal to the so-called barbarian nations that China had resumed her rightful place in the firmament of nations. It had once again become the middle kingdom of the world. The many accounts of the voyages don't lend themselves to understatement either. They say things like, the ships which sail the southern seas are like houses. When their sails are spread, they are like great clouds in the sky. So it was a simple task to impress the political leadership of western India. The first voyage was an unqualified success. So much so, in fact, that the emperor decreed a series of voyages, seven of which Zheng He commanded. Despite the fleet's imposing presence, its holds were a tempting target for robbers and pirates. Zheng He battled these ships off the coast of India, quickly subduing them. They also contended with fierce weather. While traveling to India, hurricanes threatened to sink their fleet. These dangers had a significant impact on the admiral's eclectic religious system. Zheng He developed his own unique blends of belief inspired by Islam, Chinese mythology, and philosophy, and he would pray to whatever deity would calm the storm. The winner, apparently, was the Taoist goddess known as the celestial spouse and protector of sailors. Sources claim she shone a divine light at the tips of the mast before the storm subsided. Well, whatever god it was that assisted their journey, the fleet eventually reached their destination of Calcutta on India's western coast. Years later, Zheng He returned the favor and directed the 1407-1408 remodeling of a temple dedicated to this goddess in Naiju. The first port of call of the treasure fleet was at Vijay in modern-day Vietnam. After that, they went to Java in Indonesia, avoiding the pirate fleet of Chen Zui. They stopped at other islands along the massive archipelago for supplies and occasional repairs. In Sri Lanka, the fleet retreated after encountering a hostile ruler. 
Once arriving in Calcutta, the treasure fleet spent considerable time there exchanging gifts with local rulers. The Indian coastal city was a major Asian trade hub, something of a medieval Dubai or Singapore, and the sailors filled their cargo holds with gifts. Foreign envoys entered the guest cabins of the ships to undertake a voyage to the Chinese court and discuss the terms of their tribute with the Yongle Emperor. The contents of their cargo didn't go unnoticed by Chen Zui. He confronted them in Indonesia as the fleet was returning to China. He pretended to surrender to Zheng He, but then turned on the treasure fleet in an attempt to plunder it. Zheng He counterattacked, killing more than 5,000 pirates, sinking 10 of their ships and capturing 7 more. The pirates and his first mate were captured, and they were taken back to Beijing, where they were beheaded in 1407. The second voyage set out in 1407 to return the foreign envoys home and to continue their journey of trade, discovery, diplomacy, and imperial expansion. They traveled as far as Sri Lanka, stopping in Champa, Java, and Thailand along the way. The crew returned in 1409 with new holds of exotic merchandise and tribute from states represented by their envoys. In this voyage, the Ming Dynasty established its trade links and commercial supremacy in the Indian Ocean. Following its completion, the fleet quickly turned around for its third voyage, which lasted two years. During this voyage, the Imperial fleet was involved in its only major foreign land battle. It also offered gifts to a Buddhist temple, demonstrating the Chinese emperor's willingness to patronize other religions, in contrast to the Muslim and Christian rulers of the day. The voyage continued until 1411 and largely followed the route of the first voyage, ending at Calcutta. The fourth voyage of 1413 to 1415 was the most ambitious and proved the technological superiority of Chinese naval technology compared to their European counterparts of the time. The voyage took the crew to Hormuz in Bengal, then traveled south along the Horn of Africa, stopping at Mogadishu and Malindi. Here, they obtained the first giraffe ever seen by the Chinese. It was considered a quillin, a mythical creature approximating a unicorn, and became a symbol of peace and prosperity for future voyages. Subsequent voyages brought back lions, leopards, ostriches, zebras, and oryx, all thought to be celestial creatures. They were presented at the imperial court to the awe of the courtesans. In this trip, an estimated 18 states sent envoys and tribute to China, further consolidating the Ming Emperor's trade and political dominance in post-Tamerlane Asia. The treasure fleet returned to Arabia and Africa on the 5th and 6th voyages, lasting from 1416 to 1419 and 1421 to 1422, respectively. They established vassal states, as they did on their first voyage, and collected tribute from 30 new principalities. With subjects filling the coastlines from Vietnam to Zanzibar, the Indian Ocean was becoming a Chinese lake. The fleet continued the emperor's policy of shuttle diplomacy, bringing foreign dignitaries back to the imperial capital while returning envoys to their homelands. In 1424, during Zheng He's sixth voyage, the emperor died while on a military campaign. His successor threatened to end any future voyages, which, while impressive, were enormously expensive and drained the state's coffers and at best were considered a deposit for future wealth and future grandeur in the Indian Ocean, at worst were considered a terrible waste of money and it made the Chinese empire more vulnerable to insurrection or attacks. Zheng He was appointed as the defender of Nanjing, the southern capital of the empire. During his short tenure in this post, he was responsible for the completion of the porcelain tower of Nanjing, an octagonal building over 260 feet tall and considered a wonder of the world until its destruction in the 19th century. 
But the new emperor died after only nine months on the throne and was replaced by his more visionary son, the Zhuang Di Emperor. On June 29, 1429, he ordered the treasure fleet on one more journey of trade and exploration. At nearly 60 years old, Zheng He still maintained a commanding presence, what his contemporaries described as walking like a tiger, but he was in poor health. He set out for Africa's Swahili coast on this three-year voyage, visiting 17 ports between Vietnam and modern-day Kenya. The voyage included a side trip to Mecca, in which the erstwhile Muslim likely completed a religious pilgrimage. But in 1433, while the fleet was en route back to China, the alien 62-year-old died among the islands of Indonesia. He received a fitting burial for his profession, and his body was laid to rest in the calm blue waters of the tropical sea. His men brought back his shoes and a braid of his hair to be buried in the Chinese capital. China's desire for naval adventure and discovery died with Zheng He. The young emperor, Zhuang Di, came to agree with his father's decision to halt the expensive voyages. He wrote that the treasure fleet was more trouble than it was worth, and more importantly, contrary to the admonitions of the Hongwu emperor, the founder of the Ming dynasty. The Hongwu emperor wrote in 1373 that, Some far-off countries pay their tribute to me at much expense and through great difficulties, all of which are by no means my own wish. Messages should be forwarded to them to reduce their tribute so as to avoid high and unnecessary expenses on both sides. Such voyages, Zhuangdi thought, were good for trade and tribute, but they overstretched the empire and violated Confucian principles of harmony. Zheng He's legacy was intentionally downplayed in the years after his death. The Ming Dynasty's eunuch faction fell out of power and were replaced by the Confucian scholar bureaucrats. The victors minimized Zheng He's impact and accomplishments in official records as they ran contrary to the current emperor's less ambitious foreign policy. He went unmentioned in official dynastic histories of the time. The Imperial Navy became an unimportant branch of the Chinese military, which in the 15th century was far more concerned with the threats of the Yuan Mongols to the north. Zheng He's companions Ma Han, Gong Zhen, and Fei Ji published accounts of their travels from 1433 to 1436, but they received little attention. But Zheng He's star has shone more brightly in more recent centuries. Among the Chinese diaspora of Southeast Asia, he became the object of cult veneration in Chinese temples that he is believed to have established. Novelizations of his adventures were published as early as 1597, such as The Romance of the Three-Jeweled Eunuch. He remained an obscure figure until the Chinese public rediscovered the admiral in the modern era with a 1904 publication of Liang Quihao's The Biography of Our Homeland's Greatest Navigator, Zhang He. Today, the Chinese celebrate maritime power on July 11th to honor Zhang He's first voyage. He has become a symbol of bravery and imperial power, which is convenient for a nation very focused on projecting its economic and political might and military might in the 21st century. Zheng He also contributed to the spread of China's genetic influence. When New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof visited the African island of Pate off the coast of Kenya, he met an elderly man who claimed that his village was descended from Chinese sailors who were shipwrecked on the island centuries ago. This crew was part of a massive fleet responsible for trading with local Africans who had given them drafts to bring back to China. Kristof noted that the islanders had a vague Asian appearance and kept many Chinese heirlooms in their house, such as precious porcelain and antiques. The voyages of Zheng He were as important for the expansion of Chinese geography as Marco Polo's journey was for Europe. He introduced China to Arabia, East Africa, India, and modern-day Vietnam. 
The Junks visited Taiwan and the Persian Gulf, establishing new trade routes with the West long before Europeans made a concerted effort to travel eastward. Due to Zheng He's voyages, the Chinese established their political supremacy over most states along the Indian Ocean. They were poised to become the world naval power on the eve of the Renaissance. If this had happened, Vasco da Gama and other Portuguese explorers would have met an impenetrable wall of military superiority while traveling along the coast of Africa, India, and Indonesia. European attempts at global discovery would have been little more than a footnote in history. Instead, however, the Chinese court chose to outlaw overseas trade and forbid sailing in multi-masted ships without elaborate legal permitting. This policy was designed as a means of containment, to keep the Mongol barbarians, as they called them, from their borders. Unfortunately, the ship's logs maintained by Zheng He during his travels were destroyed by Confucian bureaucrats after his death. But sources from his lifetime survive. His accomplishments are summarized on a stone pillar discovered centuries after his death, listing his achievements and his role as Admiral of the Western Seas. The long-forgotten memorial also describes Zheng He's vision of spreading the power of China beyond the seas and collecting tribute from barbarians. This monument and records kept by the emperor's court are all that remain of the legacy that led Zheng He to the farthest reaches of the world, at least from the Chinese perspective. But it's the words of the eunuch admiral himself that best describe the wonder and immense power that he felt as he stood at the helm of the flagship, looking down on the massive hulls of his vessel, filled with the constant movement of dozens of officers and thousands of sailors, all protecting a hold of gold and jewel worth billions of dollars in today's dollars and carrying envoys from lands that encompass much of the known world. He said, We have traversed more than 100,000 li of immense water spaces and have beheld in the ocean huge waves like mountains rising in the sky, and we have set eyes on barbarian regions far away hidden in a blue transparency of light vapors, while our sails loftily unfurled like clouds day and night continue their course as rapidly as a star, traversing these savage waves as if we were treading a public thoroughfare. All right, well, that's all I have for today's episode. In the next episode, we're going to be moving into the Age of Discovery proper and looking at the voyages of Ferdinand Magellan. See you there. All right, so that is all for the episode today. Once again, I want to start things off by thanking the Spy Masters of History Unplugged. I'll explain what that is in a second. Our Spy Masters include Bill Ivey, Moondoggy from Ohio, Tom from Ohio, Ryan Gillen, Rob from Chicago, Nick Brooks, Michael from New York, Carl from Norway, Josh Reddick, Jennifer French Lee, Jay Carrington, McCraze, Salvador Sanchez, David Santi, Chris C., and Baron Fraser. If you'd like to support the show, there's some very easy ways to do so. First, go to the site halfpricehistory.com. I've worked out an arrangement with a lot of the authors who've appeared on this show, and you can go there and get their books for 50% off. All you have to do is go to halfpricehistory.com and enter the promo code UNPLUGGED at checkout. Second, please leave a review and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player of choice, whether Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever. Third, join our Facebook group. You can go to Facebook and search for History Unplugged. There, you can talk with other fans of the show about recent episodes, what you liked, what you didn't like. Also, I have exclusive content there, such as live streams, where I do live versions of podcast episodes where you can leave feedback as I'm talking, and I will address it on air. Last, and I think this is the best, is to join our membership program, the Knowlton's Rangers. The Knowlton's Rangers were George Washington's spies during the Revolutionary War, 
but it's also the name of the membership program for History Unplugged. If you go to patreon.com slash unplugged, you can join the membership program at three levels. If you join at the scout level, you'll get all 400 episodes of History Unplugged absolutely ad-free and early access to new episodes. If you join at the second level, the intelligence officer level, get all the stuff that scouts get along with bonus episodes. There's currently about 40 of them, including series on Audie Murphy and Operation Long Jump about the Nazi attempt to assassinate FDR Churchill and Stalin in 1943. Finally, if you join at the spymaster level, you'll get a shout out to you and or your business at the end of each episode. You get a three-pack of hardcover history books, and you can find out what those are if you go to patreon.com slash unplugged. Finally, you can ask me a question about history on absolutely any topic on earth, and I will research it and devote an entire episode to your question. Probably about 30% of the questions in the archive for the show have been based on these sorts of questions. So there you go. Go to patreon.com slash unplugged to learn more. All right, well, that is all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.